Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every game developer, and indeed gamer, knows a great tutorial is a key part of a game. They are essential to showing players the basics and expand the scope of a game by making it more accessible. The problem is that it can be tough to create a tutorial that pleases everyone. Here are six tips for designing a game tutorial. Those tips are less text. Don't front load tutorials. It should be fun. Reinforce learning through play. Listen to players. And players should always have access to what is conveyed in the tutorials. Those are the words of Dylan Moran, I think, uh, over at Game Career Guide. Moran, perhaps? Moran. We'll go with Dylan Moran. I'm Danielle Riando, and this is Waypoint Radio, episode 181. And joining me today in a beautiful discussion of game tutorials and elegant versus inelegant tutorials are Patrick Klepek. Hello. And Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. So this topic may sound a little dry, and I am using this sort of like semi, uh, you know, it's very like game career guide is very much a, a how-to and tips and hands-on and blogs about sort of making games. But this really struck me this week because I'm playing a game called Bad North, which I think has a really elegant and really awesome tutorial. It's a relatively simple sort of uh, real-time strategy game where you are sort of manipulating these very cute, very beautiful little 3D environments and sending little tiny uh, bastions of troops around your island uh, to defend it from the oncoming hordes. Little little bad guys come in boats, and you have to basically just sort of send units to the right place at the right time. And the tutorial for it is is really, really simple. It's just sort of like move around, look at the camera, and move your units here or move your units there. It's that simple. It's that easy. And then it, it just builds very elegantly, very, very simply from there. And I thought it was just a really great example of something that just sort of shows you how to do everything, shows you everything you need to know, but it doesn't overwhelm the player right away. And you're just sort of playing the game as it's going to be played, uh, at least on, on a basic level, right away from you know sort of the first minute. There's not like hours of text or 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 too many mechanics or or you know over tutorialization it's just this very elegant very simple smooth process uh to get into it so i thought maybe we could start by talking about games that we've been impressed by lately and how they've sort of onboarded us if they've done so in a particularly nice or cool way so rob i know you've been playing a lot of f1 2018 uh this week and i have no idea if there's anything uh in the tutorial to that game or if it's just aimed at such a hardcore audience that it's no i mean it's so it's following a lot of what pretty much any racing like the first racing games that started really introducing uh tutorial elements that i recall are um the simbin games like i think gran turismo would have like license checks uh early in the series where you'd have Mm. to like 
prove that you can like shift the car really smoothly and stuff like that, which would teach you some aspects of racecraft. But like, uh, you know, the Simbin games, which I talked about in an open thread a couple weeks ago, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, had like the dynamic racing line. That's the first time I saw that, which shows you like, you know, where to hit the gas, where to hit the brake. And as you're approaching it live, it shows you like, oh, you're going too fast. Like the line turns red because you need to like brake and shed some speed. And I think that's where a lot of racing games have ended up with like teaching players tracks. Uh, F1 2018 mostly relies on that. And then as we talked about like in the show earlier this week, they also have those different testing modes to teach you different ways of driving the track, which does, again, like it hammers home racing techniques and applying it to each of the circuits we'll be racing at. Uh, I'm not sure it is as successful at like explain the whys or hows of why this stuff matters necessarily. Like, uh, like what's the way to put this? Um, there's a lot of subsystems that we've been messing with in uh, F1 2018. You'll do the tests that like make you mess with those subsystems, like adjust your energy recovery settings. But they won't actually have like a tutorial where they like to sort of take you by the hand and like, okay, now in this stage of the racing lap, here's how you get into your multifunction display and change your car settings. You just kind of have to like do that live uh, <laughs> and like notice the button prompt. So it's an interesting case of like. It's great. It does a great job of teaching. I think the second order knowledge of playing the game, where you like have under you understand the basic mechanics and like how to control everything. But as far as I can tell, it kind of like completely like skips that first step of like, okay, here's your car and here's what it does. It it doesn't do that. Maybe for that audience, like you don't need that stuff. It's like the equivalent of in an RTS where you have that obligatory tutorial level where it's like, <laughs> now select that soldier. So, you know, and you do it and it's like, great job. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the reason to skip that sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, F1 2018 definitely like starts with an assumed knowledge level, teaches you how to use the resources based on that level, but won't actually help you get, get up there. That's an interesting choice. Patrick, I know uh, you've been playing a lot of Dead Cells, and I'm curious to hear how that sort of onboards the player. That and also, of course, being someone who plays a lot of really difficult platformers and really difficult games in general, uh, how you kind of feel about a, a tutorial? Like, what you, what do you want in a tutorial? What is it? What is a successful tutorial for you? Well, I'm not sure tutorials are necessarily aimed at me, like that kind of person. Tutorials are, you know, it depends on... What they're there for. They're there to, to help someone that is familiar with the genre understand, okay, we don't need to tell you how to do X, Y, and Z. We just need to tell you what this game does differently. Um, and then even layered into that, there's, you know, as, as Rob alluded to, there are games that uh, essentially want you to, to find and discover by trying. And that that's built into the It's not the game ignoring that in the tutorial. It's the game saying, actually, it's far more useful for you to figure that out through failure or experimentation or organically, as opposed to a tutorial prompt saying like, Hey, you should do this because it does that. Um, Cause often you're, you're less likely to sort of ingrain that information and process that information. If it's being told to you as opposed to the act of, of doing. Um, and so, you know, dead cells doesn't explain a whole lot to you. Um, it's, it, it explains its basic mechanics. It explains, I don't think it explains it's, you know, it's buttons. I think dead cells basically starts with, you are in a room, you walk to the next room, 
there's a sword you can pick up, there's a shield you can pick up, and then you're just meant to figure it out from there. Um, I don't think it tells you how to jump, how to attack, how to use your items. It doesn't tell you that there's a ground pound, which is something that I've discovered sort of organically by accident, by just holding down uh, down an A. Um, if that game trusts you to sort of, ah, if you're the kind of person that picked this up, fucking this isn't your first rodeo, and we're not going to pretend it is. And and for a lot of people, I think the discovery process is you want that. Um, you, you want the game to sort of embrace the fact that you have a, a built-in knowledge set. Uh, that said, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's I think, very helpful for games to remember that not everyone playing a game has played a game before. That said, I'm sure it's a challenge for developers to figure out what is the fine line between that because not every game is going to have a tutorial that explains here's how you play a video game, uh, and yet... Uh, you want to make sure that people come away with enough knowledge that they aren't frustrated uh, while they're they're playing the game. Um, like for there's this game, uh, what is it called that I was playing yesterday called uh, The King's Bird, which is this really beautiful platformer. It's a really uh, challenging, uh, really one of the most difficult platformers I've played in a long time. Um, and it technically explained how it's a very physics based platformer uh, in which you're doing a lot of uh tinkering with momentum and uh bouncing off walls and like chaining things like that together in order to accomplish really difficult platforming tasks and i finished the tutorial and i sure i i followed what it told me to do and i made it through the challenges that it put in front of me that were next to the button prompts that explained x does y um the moment it dropped me into a real level it was became a, a you know a, very clear that i actually did not actually process any of those lessons and uh, found myself swearing loudly with a door open down here uh, <laughs> into the just just screaming obscenities because I just could not understand for the life of me why the fuck I could not get up the wall and scale onto the next thing because it didn't look that difficult, but clearly it looked easy, but I could not do it. And I was like, I play a lot of these games. This seems like a failure of the game. And the game didn't fail. The game explained it just... T- I actually, it took me like 20 minutes of fucking around to realize like I was just holding a button in a slightly wrong way. The game wasn't giving me the kind of feedback for me to figure that out. But once I'd put it together, I was stringing together exactly what the game wanted me to do. And so, you know, that's an instance where it's hard to tell was, was it me, the player, not quite putting together or processing the tutorial? Was it that the tutorial should have been longer and more pronounced and more specific and, ma- and repetitive and making sure that you picked up on the idiosyncrasies of this particular platformer? Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure you do playtesting and then, you know, you you fall on different things. Also, from what I understand about game development, tutorials are done basically last. That's not something that is done <laughs> uh, like, ah, it's day one of production on this new game. Let's start thinking about the tutorial. Like that is, you know, one of the bottom of the list things that is done and so i think that also helps explain why a lot of tutorials are bad is because they um are done uh towards the end of the development process and also they're being created by people who know the game very well and that's going to make it a challenge to communicate when you already have a sort of ingrained set of knowledge yeah rob it sounds like you had something there yeah i mean there's there's a lot of things here that i I I don't know how I want these problems solved because on the one hand uh, I'm thinking about two really different cases, uh, but they're just in my rattling around in my head right now. Um, every time I decide, I decide like you know I think I'm ready to play Valkyria Chronicles again. <laughs> the thing that discourages me is like oh remember like the first three hours of that game are basically an extended tutorial. It's yeah, all that's, like that's very yeah. Japanese. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Here's how you move your fucking tank. And I'm like, yeah, I remember. I played this game. And it's like, no, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go through it. Like 
very slow like layering in of uh new concepts like phantom doctrine which uh you know i just reviewed uh, yeah. i i would argue um is mostly tutorial like it slowly <laughs> like introduces stuff uh at a, at a glacial pace so that like there's major systems that you won't encounter for hours and hours um and so that stuff like becomes a real hurdle because you kind of want to get to the good stuff, right? Just like, no, let me get to the part where like most of the tools are at my disposal and I can, I can run with that. Um, but if you make it, if you take that stuff out of the main campaign and make it like part of an optional tutorial, you kind of mess with the entire flow of the game, right? You don't have that yeah. like organic place to go learn the game the first time you play it, uh, which will, help keep it interesting is this sort of this guide suggests right like the reason you the valkyria chronicles tutorial works at all uh is because rather than taking you out to basically the equivalent of like a tactical parking lot where you go like learn you know like early driving <laughs> lessons like okay now park between the lines like that's just boring to do in a game you don't want to do it uh so they fold it into the campaign and the first time that works great but every time you play the game after that it's like fuck i do not want to go through this shit I'm just, I'm just done. But then the other example rattling around my head, I guess it's related to F1 2018, is uh, I think sports games have this huge problem mm. of like, yeah, there's knowing how to like press the buttons and make shit happen in a sports game. And then there's actually like understanding the actual game concepts and applying those controls. Like, dude, when I played NHL 17, it was, the, it was sort of the first time I played the game in a few years. I had to spend like, Five, six hours going back through those tutorials to be like, okay, so what, like, how do I deke again? Like, what, like, I have to learn to do all this shit. Uh, when I go back and go to Madden, it's like, I can call plays and run them. But to actually, like, really play Madden, like, you gotta know how to, like, call your hot routes. Well, yeah, there's like, playing and then there's playing. Like, yeah. you can know how to, you can know yeah. how to, oh, I gotta I hit the A button so I can, or the X button so I can throw it at the the player, when I, but that doesn't tell you strategy. And like, actually, I think that's probably what a lot of games fail to do. Is it's one thing to explain technically how the game works. It's quite another to like play it sophistic, you know, with any level of sophistication. And uh, I, Madden is like a sports games in general, are like a uh, are really great examples of that, where you can do the tutorial, come out of it, and go, "Fucking, I have that I still don't know how to play this game." <laughs> well, and even, or yeah. maybe they even teach you some of these concepts, but then you start playing the game, and you're like. I don't feel confident in these skills that I was just taught, so I'm going to stick to the basics, and I'm not going yeah. to, like, the last time I tried to use a hot route, like, I ended up calling an audible, and then I punted. I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm just, just going to throw a Hail Mary, because I know what happens. The guys run real far, and then I throw the <laughs> I throw the ball. Yeah, exactly. But then Fair. you're like, whatever you picked up from the tutorial and learning those systems, that begins to atrophy, too. And so then you have this sort of reinforcing cycle of people not pushing the boundaries of their understanding of the game because outside of the initial tutorial stuff, when you're actually playing it like for real and it, and it counts, I think there's a tendency for games to encourage a conservative play that discourages experimentation and therefore learning. Yeah, this is all not to also talk about fighting again, uh, but this is also certainly bringing things up about competing and, uh, doing grappling um will literally drill moves you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and sometimes my coach will like take your leg and put it in the right place 
just it's the same thing as like, oh, I know that the X button will do this kind of thing. Uh, but once you're actually sparring or, or competing, it's just sort of like, uh, I'm going to do this thing because this thing felt right. Uh, you know, kind of going back to either basics or something that you actually did sort of digest properly in your brain and actually understand and actually, uh, you know, feels right to do. But there's always the question of challenging yourself to, you know, learn the other 800,000 things there are to learn in something like a deep game, like a Madden or, or any sports game, really. Um, but especially Madden. I haven't played a Madden game since 2003, maybe 2002. So it's been a long, long Even time. Even by then, they'd started to get really aggressive with like yeah. the like <laughs> offensive management stuff. Like I remember, oh man, it was brutal. I think it was like NCAA 2002. Uh, I was uh, controlling the Purdue Boilermakers, uh, Northwest Indiana kid. I was going to yeah. be Purdue. And I was really into the game. And I was like, I'm pretty good. Like I'm playing on like an advanced difficulty level. Like I'm winning games. Like, you know, Boilermakers <laughs> become a great team under my watch. I think I'm good at NCAA basically. <laughs> and my buddy comes yeah. over who was like super into these games and he's like all right you think you're good at this guy okay well, let's 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 see uh who's who's next so he, he, we like oh don't never do this don't ever do this i was playing i loaded my main campaign save my next game was against iu hated iu my buddy loved iu oh no and so he's like well i'll just play against you I had a perfect record. Mind you, the thing about college football is basically you need a perfect record, especially back then. You needed a perfect record if you're going to like do anything in the postseason. So I'm like, all right, yeah. It's like I use I you had a shitty football program in that era. Never had a great football program, but it was really bad back then. Uh, but they had this one guy uh, who eventually I think played for the Steelers, uh, Randall L. You remember Randall L. Patrick? Oh, uh, vague, like it's scratching something at the back of my head. Yeah, like one of the prototypical, like super athletic, uh, rangy quarterbacks, like a Michael Vick uh, archetype oh, almost. Yes. Of like, yeah, 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 so yeah. like run the Wildcat, basically, uh, t- type offense, option, option offense, uh, very, very heavy stuff like that. And uh, so my buddy like takes over IU and like puts Randall in at quarterback. And, um, I'm just doing the thing where, like, playing NCAA, and I'm like, I'm going to call my defense, call my offense, like, here's my play. And my buddy's just, like, fucking reading me. Like, we, <laughs> like the teams are coming to the line, and he just looks at the, looks, looks at the way I've lined up, and, like, then some of these, like, flurry emotions, uh, you know, on the controller, and, like, the defense and offense, like, completely realigns. And then he just like fucking burned me play after play after play after play. Like I think I lost by like a hundred to like fourteen or so. It was it was brutal and like just completely trashed my save. Um it was like one of those edge cases where even the canned commentary is starting to comment like how weird this is. Uh where they're like, Man, didn't think Purdue would get destroyed by this team so badly. Like it was it was, it was shit like that. Do we have to stick around and keep commentating? <laughs> yeah. It was. <laughs> I'm it, getting a beer. Yeah. But the thing is, like, he had all this ability to use those advanced game concepts and had practiced with them a ton. Nothing in the game ever really suggested to me that, it, like, it was necessary. Like, if you have a busted play, you have a busted play. Right. But there was nothing in the game that said, like, hey, you might want to move your tight end over here and have them run a different route. And here's how you do that. Like I needed, I needed like uh, offensive coordinator Clippy basically to be like, hey, it looks like it looks like you're running a post route. Would you like to, you know, do something, you know, do something like that? 
Um, but a lot of games, I think, struggle to teach those second order, like, both understanding game, game concepts and applying your tools to those concepts. Uh, I think a lot of games, especially ones that are, like, kind of complicated, uh, really struggle with that stuff. Yeah. I agree completely. And I also think teaching style is a major issue here as well. So, you know, you have your Dark Souls style brutal teacher, you know, who, who, you know, the master on the mountain kind of thing where, you know, the young swordsman comes up and wants to learn from the master and like, you know, chops wood for a year before you really like but the game ready to hold the sword. Though, like, but it's, yeah. it's interesting how the, the, they have changed over time. So like for, for example, uh, in... In Dark Souls, uh, you enter into uh, this sort of, like, really small contained area that has, like, a tiny little bit of everything, uh, flavor of the game. And there are little, uh, you know, the, the messages you find in the game, which are usually written by players, are messages from the developers explaining, you know, how to attack, how to dodge, how to run, how to roll. Um, and then you, you know, you get picked up by a giant crow, and then the game transports you to to the main game like you fight a bunch of enemies you probably die there there's a bonfire there's an enemy like they're the loop of dark souls is like contained within like this extremely tiny little spot um in which there's a lot of implicit tutorializing going on through the reactions to the player and then explicit tutorializing going on that is like hey yo to roll you hit circle um whereas i believe in bloodborne there is none of that you uh um you're just kind of uh, thrown into the game. Uh, so the way that like Bloodborne opens is that you, I, believe, I mean, it's been a long time since I played the opening, but they give you a couple of the basics, but then, whereas in Dark Souls, this area you're meant to die, or, or you're meant to, to defeat the boss and then proceed to the next area, in Bloodborne, you, the first major enemy encounter, you're expected to die. Like, you can beat it. There are, like, videos of people beating that first enemy and progressing. Like, the game does not like allows you to continue um if you manage to pull it off but you are not meant to beat that enemy um and then you die and then you go to this in-between world um you know the hunter's dream for people who played the game and then that's where you get some more tutorialization some context some setup um like those are two very different ways to sort of like jump between the various like i guess it's like you know as, as you know we've been talking about like the difference between implicit and explicit tutorializing yeah. where there are ways for games to be very forward and then there are ways for games to kind of guide you along a path without saying that that's what they're actually doing but Danielle, like you talking about fighting reminds me of one of the really tricky things to teach players uh especially if you don't want to just piss them off is like how do you prepare people for those high stakes systematically complicated or systemically complicated uh encounters like again we talked like when we talked about this the other day like the like my ref point of reference is fencing like when things get yeah. very fast paced and very close in it is moving faster than you really can process sometimes like things are happening and like muscle memory is firing but like i couldn't actually say what the move counter move actually was i don't i don't really know i just sort of had, had to feel my way through a lot of games do want you to know that stuff. And like PUBG is an example of like, it doesn't explicitly guide you to this, but like doing the spicy drop is a good way to learn core elements of the game because like you just go in there, you start messing around with weapons, you fight people. It's all high stakes. You you cut right to the 
the really high pressure part and the really failure prone part, and that's where you learn it. You don't try to hide from it, and that's that's one of the ways you get good. Uh, I think a lot of games have a hard time bringing that moment to players, uh, and so players are never quite prepared for it, and that can be really frustrating. Um, I feel like sometimes I see that frustration happening uh, on uh, the Bloodborne streams with Natalie, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, the sink or swim parts are are brutal uh, in that game, especially, but in in a lot of games, uh, because obviously this stuff is hard and people learn at different speeds and they learn better from different things. That's why, you know, the one size fit all, fits all option is never going to be the best option, because some people actually do a lot better with like gentle tutorialization and handholding. And some people do a lot better if they're thrown into something and they want to figure things out on their own. There's different types of players or different things that motivate players, right? Of course. And it it sure is interesting uh, to watch, uh, especially with Bloodborne. There is one concept I want to talk about a little bit here, and that is with like a, a traditional, um, uh, you know, games that have level structures, right? More or less traditional level structures. Bloodborne, I think, uses its sort of entire first level as something of a tutorial because there is, again, there's no like explicit tutorial in that game. Yeah, that first room you wake up in, or I guess it's the second room that you go in has a werewolf in it and you're just like a scrub and you're sweat. I think it's sweaty clothes that you start off in. Oh, I guess it depends on what your build is, but you've got nothing really. You just, it's, you can punch a werewolf if you want. Uh, and like it's, it's sink or swim, but that whole level is very, um, it starts off in a pretty linear way, right? It's like there are alleyways and corridors and you can actually very explicitly see, you know, you go down that sort of first little alleyway and there's a guy sleeping and then he gets up but it's only sort of one enemy at that point and then there's i think two more and then you're actually at that sort of first street where there's a roving band of enemies and that's explicitly supposed to teach you how to um how to pull enemies right a lot of these things are sort of woven into that first level and that's pretty typical in a lot of games right that things that are sort of woven into a first level or or sort of hinted at or 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 given you know you're given some information about a particular mechanic or some information about a particular uh, operation uh in in order to kind of uh, get a sense of it and and what your appetite i guess for it and see if this is really going to be something you want to stick with or if it's something you're gonna you know fall out of and that's always a danger rob it looks like you've got something there no 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 oh sorry i thought there was a <laughs> i thought there was a gesture uh, one thing I did want to talk about, and we kind of touched a tiny bit on just generally Japanese games, but I wanted to talk about Nintendo games mm -hmm. uh, in this, because I think Nintendo both uh, has some great tutorialization in some of its games and horrible <laughs> tutorialization in other games, uh, specifically the sort of latter Zelda games. Uh, not Breath of the Wild. I think Breath of the Wild is an excellent example. But Skyward Sword was uh, the 2012 uh, Zelda game, the precursor in a lot of ways to Breath of the Wild. Uh, was dinged absolutely rightly for having this god oh it, it took hours to feel like you were getting anywhere in that game and twilight princess the game before that as well and both of them were burdened with um i think it's correct to say burdened with motion controls and other ways of controlling the game other ways of operating the game that got in the way certainly for me and for you know some other folks uh and that that could be an issue but things like 
the Mario games, like even the very early Mario games have amazing tutorialization. That first level in the first Super Mario Brothers, you're sort of taught right away what a good mushroom and a bad mushroom is, right? There's like, oh, the power up, that does a good thing. I, I'm bigger now. I'm, I'm more powerful. Immediately kind of tells you something, whereas there's an angry little mushroom running around and, and you run into that and you die, right? Just immediately you're brought up. All these concepts are kind of brought up in a subtle way, uh, implicit in both the, the level design and sort of the, the enemy design and power-up design. Uh, so I'm curious if either of you have some sort of Nintendo thoughts um, because, yeah, they, it feels like they've run the gamut in, in a way that is <laughs> extreme on both ends for me. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, I, I think the Skyward Sword was an extreme example of a game that has what Rob mentioned earlier of... Uh, more of a tendency amongst Japanese video games to like have these really protracted uh, tutorials that are spread out in the real game itself in which if it was just condensed into something much smaller, it would be more effective. Um, and I think Nintendo is a company that tries to appeal to all audiences and specifically younger audiences. I think sometimes they find themselves in a situation where the handholding comes from a position of wanting to make sure that people are grasping the game that they're making. Um, and in the case of Skyward Sword was that they, they, you know, they, they just did that for far too long at the expense of the momentum in the game and the pacing of the game for people who, you know, did, didn't need that much time. Um, it would seem like, and at some point it becomes patronizing to the point of, you know, I, you should just trust, like trust the player. And <laughs> so a lot of this tutorialization comes down to like, how much do games trust the player um, or not trust the player. Um, and in the case of Nintendo games, often it's that they do not trust players because they not be, maybe it's not that they trust them, but they want to be very clear about their intentions. And like the tutorial is one way that Nintendo communicates that. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have something like WarioWare where it's like, just play it. <laughs> right. And a lot of a lot of the design is just sort of communicated immediately in those little sort of four second games. So yeah, it's very... Right. It's very interesting to me how they approach different genres, certainly. Uh, and something like Splatoon um, felt like a good balance, at least to me, uh, in terms of explaining stuff, but without being overly hand-holdy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that's them trusting, like, hey, we're making a shooter. And yeah. So, you know, you know how this works. Things. Well, and, and I think also something <laughs> yeah. that, that's changed in the culture these days, and I'm not sure how much this is applicable to Nintendo specifically or just sort of uh, holistically for the industry, is that, well, look, if you want something explained, like, there are people on YouTube and Twitch that will do it for you. You know, if you want to know how to do X, how to find Y, well, you know, why, why not err on the side of not explaining it? And then if you need to go find that, there's a whole community that will both profit off of and do it for you. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think a lot of developers, you know, either uh, on purpose or like just sort of accidentally stumble into relying on communities built up around their games in order to sort of satisfy certain expectations of the player, certain questions by the player um, that could be answered by the community itself. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, certainly. That and there itself, is a question. Sorry, oh, I was go just going to say that in itself though becomes a like kind of an examination, like it's an exam of are you good at finding where that, those good tutorials are? Because it's not always <laughs> like a, a thing you can just search and like wisdom of the crowd will guide you to. No, like, it's here's a forty five minute video with seventeen minutes of setup and like eight minutes of make sure to like subscribe and comment and then like oh, how do I find the forty five fucking seconds that I need in order to to do the task? Uh, the the downfall of video. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a Especially again, if you're talking about like stuff that's more unpacking, like more advanced concepts, right? Like who's actually going to explain this in a way that's helpful 
And also right. not in a way that's like somehow wrong, right? Like you can have like good tutorials <laughs> yeah. that like contain some bad information in them. And like if you accept that as like, well, this is the right way to do it, that can send you down a dark path. Uh, so that that becomes tricky in itself. Um, but yeah, I Nintendo's uh, something I can't speak too much to because I'm not like much of a Nintendo uh, gamer. And, and have, even though you got that Switch. That's true, but like I don't have the, <laughs> the background uh, with, with Nintendo sure. games, not since the SNES games. I think the genius of a lot of Nintendo games is you just never know that you're being taught and instructed. Um, like as a kid, like you're thinking, and this this was me playing Nintendo games. I'm like, man, I'm like I'm good at this shit, and it didn't <laughs> dawn on me that like, no, man, like you were kind of taught everything in this level about how it worked in the first, like, you know, minute and a half, and then you just had to repeat. Yeah. This isn't an intrinsic skill. Yeah. But it does make you feel special, right? That's that's something I've always found very interesting about games in particular, and uh, tutorialization uh, is just how, how smart it makes you feel when it's done well. And Portal's, of course, the, like, gold standard in this, uh, but just something that makes you feel so damn smart. Uh, because it's been designed to teach you at a really good and really sort of pleasurable pace. And you start mastering things and you're like, wow, look at me. I'm a pro gamer. Look at me doing all these puzzles or doing all this amazing stuff and having all these incredible skills. It's very, it's very appealing. I wanted to give uh, one quick example, uh, an old example for uh, <laughs> having the wrong information in a tutorial. I remember Mario 64, the Prima official guide. To Super Mario 64, maybe it was unofficial, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was Prima, though. Had the wrong way, definitely the wrong way, to get the star in the pyramid in the desert world. Where, that had to do with, like, the hands. There's, like, weird, like, they're not mummy hands, they're, like, brick hands. It's, it's fine, it's, it's okay if you don't uh, recall this. But it had some weird, arcane, like, series of jumps instead of just, like, going and facing this one enemy in, like, this really easy and simple way. And it was clearly, like... Whoever wrote this guide, like, was up all night cr- devising, like, this beautiful strategy, this, like, incredible, probably, like, speedrunner strat, uh, and ended up being like, no, this, there is another way <laughs> to do this. The intended path was completely different, and I always found that, like, very amusing, even though I was, like, 13 and reading this guide. Like, I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think, I don't think you need to do that. <laughs> I felt very smart. There is one more question I wanted to ask before we go into our letters, and that is, it's a little bit of a, a, a slight segue, but it has to do with, uh, I think about this a lot, right, in, in terms of how essential is a good tutorial to actual world building and story and setting and actually like setting tone and mood as well as teaching gameplay concepts, right? We've I think we've all played games that are like perfectly good games uh, that were enjoyable and fun to play, but like the tutorial felt very much like, and now we're sitting in a classroom and learning a thing, and then we'll go to the real game, as opposed to something that felt very organic to the process of the game itself, or actually put you in a certain headspace or something. Um, I think Bloodborne is actually a pretty good example of that, uh, even though I think Bloodborne has some issues. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, but um, in using its sort of first level as a giant tutorial, as like a big tutorial space that also has other elements and you can certainly go and explore and you can do other things but going through on the sort of intended path really does teach you all the various mechanics you're going to need for most of the rest of the game um and it does it organically and it does it in this creepy weird very very uh intense world and also does of course that wonderful bait and switch with the victorian ed hardy aesthetics there so 
that's also pretty cool. But do either of you have examples of that where it's been done really well or or really poorly, I suppose, as well? Hmm. I think uh, a lot of tutorials can, like, a tutorial is a great place to explain what is this game even about? Like, fundamentally, <laughs> sure. what is the thing it's trying to evoke, the thing it is trying to sort of get out of you, the competence it's trying to develop? Uh, in you like f1 does a good job of this the testing sessions but like a lot of games do like can have really elegant sort of hidden tutorials by leaning on atmosphere and narrative or thematic justifications right like um game i'm thinking about just kind of randomly right now is um the brothers in arms series by gearbox which was a really cool like World War II first-person shooter, but like sort of a squad command uh, mechanic. Well, the first game opens, I think, on like D-Day, right? So it's that that you know the guys jumping out of the planes, landing you know behind enemy lines, and it's all really dramatic because you know D-Day, uh, night paratroop, you know, uh, airborne drop. It's it's all very exciting, but the justification is like, hey, we've caught the Germans by surprise, like. So it's not going to be too hard. It's going to be dramatic, but here's mm. what you do. And it's it's very linear. It's more linear than the game's going to be at any point after. But it's like, okay, here's a clear piece of cover that flanks an enemy position. Tell your guys to go there. See what happens. And like it, it gives you that sort of baby steps thing. And it doesn't really let up on that until you sort of hit a uh, climactic like bayonet charge, I think, at the, the end of sort of this extended... Uh, like first level uh, sequence, but that, that's very effective at telling you like, here's what your character's supposed to be doing. This is not actually just a game where you run around like shoot the Nazis. Like it's actually more important that you use the squads that you've got around you and like use the way the level is laid out. That's how you're going to play this game, and it never feels uh, sort of like a drag because it's got that sort of cool uh, like wrapper. Uh, around it yeah. uh, so I think that that sort of stuff tends to work really well uh, but again it's a tricky thing to pull off because what's the difference between that and Valkyria Chronicles like why is why is Brothers in Arms like kind of a good on-ramp into the game and Valkyria Chronicles literally I stop myself from replaying the game because I start thinking about the first three hours <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah definitely um, I, I can't think of anything specific in that direction, but I, I, I know that, like, as a general rule, I, I appreciate, or I, I find it fun when a game sort of, like, deliberately chooses to not have a tutorial, and then, you know, it's sort of on you as the player to sort of, like, poke and prod and figure out what exactly are the rules of this game, what are the limits of this game, and, and the reason it doesn't have tutorials is because it wants you to to do that on your explicitly on your own is to to define those boundaries and to to press the buttons on the controller and to 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 press the buttons on the keyboard to to figure out exactly what you're going to be allowed to do and so it's always fun where you know that that game sort of requires you know that the person playing it is you know knows what they're in for but it's always fun when the game sort of trusts you with that long of a leash to just say hey you know go figure it out have fun yeah yeah that is a lot of fun i always love that especially in kind of experimental games or, or weird games or something like a uh, paratopic has been on my mind again lately uh, as something that just is operating in on a weird level and you don't completely understand it too. You've been playing it for a little while and you're just like, yeah, 
there is a sort of element of mystery, right, that you want to preserve, at least in certain types of games. If the player experience is to kind of have that mystery or kind of have that sort of layer of obfuscation, and that's actually part of what you're dealing with. And it's it's pretty necessary to not be like, well, and then you're going to walk here and there's going to be a hard cut. And then you're going to walk here and there's going to be another cut. That would, that would ruin the whole thing, right? So, yeah. Um, if there are no other thoughts on tutorials, I suppose we should take a quick break and we'll be right back with some reader mail. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back. It's not reader mail. I forgot. It's the question bucket. How dare I use the wrong term uh, for, <laughs> for for this beautiful correspondence that we have. This guy's got a couple questions. Readers. I don't know why they called it reader mail. It's all bullshit. Anymore. I know. I know. It's such bullshit. It's it's a very old timey term. Like it does make me think of like, and here's the mailman. On the other hand, we did try to one up them with weekend correspondence. So, you know, yeah, we're true. assholes too. It's anyway. It's like all our fault. That it's bucket, all our fault, Rob. The trough. <laughs> I'm dipping in. Dip it in. There's a there's a bucket. I'm I'm going right in. I've got a good question here. I'm I'm reeling it up. As I'm I'm miming a terrible fishing rod. This is from Josh. And Josh writes, Hey Waypoint crew. One of my favorite genres of games has always been JRPGs. But I had to watch a lot of cool series disappear over the years. Personal favorites of mine like Suikoden. Suikoden. Oh god. Something like that. And Skies of Arcadia either stopped getting sequels or never got one at all. Side note, I was so glad Fire Emblem became popular instead of dying with Awakening. Have you all had favorite series or games vanish, and how have you dealt with it? Best, Josh. <sighs> well, I sure loved GoldenEye and Perfect Dark, and that one didn't end super hot. <laughs> that one, there was Perfect Dark Zero, it was like an Xbox 360, I think, launch game, or maybe original Xbox launch game. Uh, and Perfect it, Dark Zero? Yeah, that was... Was that, that was original Xbox? That was 360. It was 360. Okay, yeah, it was like 2005. Okay. And that just... It wasn't super awesome. Just wasn't the most awesome game. And so, I mean, honestly, this is me with everything rare, right? This is this is Banjo-Kazooie. This is the, you know, Perfect Dark and uh, GoldenEye series. It's it's a lot of those rare games that I loved and grew up with and, and adored and wanted to see... In the new generation, wanted to see with new quirks, wanted to see with new uh, design uh, paradigms, and then it just kind of didn't happen. Although I, I will hold out hope forever that one day there will be another another Banjo-Kazooie that's actually good. So it's my biggest one, probably. Wow, there's so many games these days. Like, pretty much, I mean, it's hard, I'm hard-pressed to, like, the, there's a specific type of game that they just don't make anymore, because, I mean, that's just... The problem is they make too, like, you know, August had too many Metroidvania style games to the point where <laughs> Guacamelee 2, a game that seems totally fine and good, it was like, okay, I already played three of these in the, <laughs> the last month. I don't, 
Please stop, actually. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it's God, all good they... in basic land, Patrick. But wow. let me tell yeah. you about... There's no more immersive Sims. Yeah, exactly. Throw the table. You know? They fucking got Prey and Dishonored, uh, uh, like a d- massive DLC. But now they've been the sent last... off to a farm in Connecticut. Oh, shut the fuck up. You got True. the last 18 months. Like, <laughs> at least Daniel was in the last five like years. A game... <laughs> yeah. At least Daniel's point was that they're not going to make. But I don't think you'd want to play a new Perfect Dark that was made, that was floaty as hell. Like, No, no, I want another Dark. good version of. You're like of... Splinter Cell with Joanna Dark, is what you want. Yeah, basically. Or, or even like, well, I know Time Splitters just got acquired, so maybe something cool could happen. But I like that, like, very fun, almost cartoonish uh, shooters that that have like mission based gameplay instead of just combat. Like that, that's what appealed to me. I mean, the new Doom actually touched on some of that, certainly. But I'm not, I'm not just in it for shooting ever with with like almost any game. I, I really enjoyed the level design in a lot of those in like the Golden Age and Perfect Dark games. I thought it was pretty wild and like I actually had fun exploring off the beaten path and things like that. So I'm also weird, uh, which is which is fine. Sorry, Rob. It looks like you've got no. You I have your, mean, your I thinking mean, I mean, like on. I think I just like I, I'm constantly pining over shit I'm not going to get more of, right? Like I mean, this is why I wrote a big thing about like, oh man, like somebody's like saying they're going to make Stalker 2 again for like what, 2023 or something like that. Like and, yeah, and then like 2 weeks later it's revealed like, oh, we only announced that to hopefully get funding from somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I'm I'm always like, mm, well maybe, that'd be cool. Um and there's a point where you just like kind of have to like let something rest where it's like, well, we had like, that's what that was. And it's almost better that you have like the main, the stalker series, which is good and is sort of complete and it exists and it hasn't become like a husk of itself. The way some weird, like I was weirdly into the fear series, basically on the strength of one Mm. being such a great fucking shooter, but each new fear game was worse than the last. Like there were some things I liked in three, but like, it's kind of dog shit too. Like the story was completely all over the map, and it no longer. Did they even make the monolith even make the third one? They made the third one. They didn't make the second one. And the oh, third one. Oh, I flipped those in my head. Yeah, and the third one kind of pretended the second one never happened. I think. Right. It, there right. was. Oh, one of those. It's it's a very weird thing. The <laughs> chronology is very strange. Like the first uh, the first game gets two expansions that were made by not monolith. And then the second game is also made by not Monolith. And then Monolith comes back, I think, for the third game and says, no, none of that happened. And they erase everything that came before. But in retrospect, it probably would have been better if, like, there had been no more fear after the first one. And, like, you just had this one (laughs) good game. And, like, you know, a no one lives forever situation. There is no bad no one lives forever game. But I don't know. I'd rather that's that's a better situation for me than like Far Cry Two eventually giving way to like Far Cry fucking five. <sighs> yeah, that's a good point. That's the counterpoint here to to Josh's question. Like, you either die young or live long enough to see your heroes. Whatever. I don't remember what that phrase. <laughs> Nailed is. it. Sorry. Nailed, don't Nailed that it. Out. You got to live with that one. <laughs> got to own that. <laughs> so proud it died like as i was saying it i just yeah like, you eat like you even uh, did a poor job of the yada 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 part where like you're like oh you know the phrase <laughs> you know that like, you, phrase tried, about- you tried to pick up the phrase again halfway through and then all <laughs> <laughs> here at waypoint radio uh-huh. we get everything right 
the first time. Always. <laughs> it's very, it's very beautiful. We believe in growth here at Wavepoint Radio. People can change. That's um, right. I believe you can change too. You can look up that phrase, Danielle, and you can, <laughs> you can get it right the second time. You know, I could. I definitely could, but I'm afraid of making too much noise with this mouse. And that's why I'm just kind of like sitting here like, yeah, no, this is, this is good. We did good today. I have a slightly uh, heavier question here uh, for the second one. Rob, it looks like you're already you're already in here and you're taking a look. No, I was, yeah, I was uh, looking at. All right. Uh, so this one is about fascist aesthetics. We're gonna do. I'm gonna just do a verbal content warning right here. It's gonna be about Nazis, fascist stuff, and both sidesism. So get ready for that. <clears throat> this is from Lore, and Lore writes. I wanted to bring up video games' use of fascist aesthetics, and more specifically the ways World War II is used as a setting for so many competitive games that require a large degree of both sidesing the conflict and meaning of that conflict uh, to make work. HOI, uh, I'm not sure what HOI is, but um, HOI 4 is more specifically what I had in mind, but the innumerable World War II-themed FPS games come to mind. To me, these games have always felt like, felt integral to the sort of uh, scare quotes, ironic Nazi jokes, the casual anti-Semitism and desensitization of this issue uh, to uh, at best lead people to view this era and these subjects as, quote, not that bad, echoing, for instance, the lost cause view of the Confederate South. And at worst, to outright anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial and fascist fanboying that is rampant in the Gamergate alt-right circles. I know uh, these groups also tend to sweep the evils of fascism, racism, and sexism, etc. under the rug throughout both sides, view of history through whataboutism and equivocating that I feel is supported by a game who only distinguishes between the two sides of this conflict through the color of the uniforms or X more hit points on German tanks. Am I perhaps making too big a deal of this? Or should we be asking why we're choosing to make World War II a rather equal or both sides conflict in video games? Should games media be... Uh, maybe be more critical of the use of fascist imagery and aesthetics in video games. Any thoughts appreciated from lore. So it's a nice happy one. Is that Hearts of Iron 4? Does that sound Yes, that, be a thing? Yeah. that sounds correct. That's what my brain tried to play. I think you're right. Strategy yep. game though, right? Yeah. All right. So I'm not that familiar with the series, obviously, but I do know that very recently, uh, in the last week or so, actually, Gama Sutra had a piece from a German studio that actually made the first game uh, that was sort of allowed to use uh, swastikas and other sort of Nazi imagery in their game. And they took a very, as I understood it in the piece that I read, and I can link that piece in the show notes, a very, very, very hard stance, obviously, against Nazism and uh, the right and the Reich, the whole deal which was very interesting because there is like a very 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 strict rules there about what media can use certain symbols obviously because of the history there so Through the that seems like an interesting counterpoint yes yeah. that's exactly it yeah there's a piece by the developers there who go into the whole process that they had to deal with with the german government to actually you know convince them that that they're making an artistic statement they're making an actual statement against nazism using these symbols and using them in such a way to obviously denounce uh, what they were using. It wasn't uh, a piece of propaganda, basically, which was pretty wild. Are you familiar with the Hearts of Iron series, Rob? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've All right. like, played Hearts of Iron 4 a lot. I like it a lot. Uh, it does not focus too much on the internal politics of the respective uh, countries involved, mm. which does kind of like... Hearts of Iron 4 does present a world where you can sort of just tune out the reality of it and say... 
the world is a chessboard. Here's the state of play in 1933, and let's see who can, uh, you know, who, who can win the uh, 1936. Uh, the world is a chessboard, and like, let's see who can, you know, play uh, their side the best. And I don't know, like, to a degree. The question, like the the question, is a little bit loaded. Like, should we be more critical and thoughtful about like fascist imagery and aesthetics uh, in video games, touching on these historical topics? You'd have to be some kind of asshole to say, "No, nah, I think I think we're good." <laughs> like, I think I think this just pr- like you know, pr- it can be handled pretty neutrally and can just be kind of a cool thing that we play around with. Of course, you should. I mean, be- he's kind of saying like, should every game that like invokes it also come with the caveat of like making sure the game is saying like oh by the way this is bad which i don't i don't feel that is necessarily the case i mean if he if he's if he's implying that like through like the video games and media in general like looking for the easy out which is a good guy and a bad guy in a realistic setting and then subsequently a war setting like nazis make it easy because in it's it's black and white in a lot of ways like there were good people and there were bad people go shoot the bad people like that's easy enough. Um, you know, I think the reason that, like, people responded, like, really uh, uh, sharply to a game like the, uh, the, in the Wolfenstein reboot was, like, yeah. okay, does it handle the Holocaust, like, really subtly and interestingly? No. But was it, like, shocking to have a game set in World War II that actually acknowledged, like, the Holocaust? Like, yes, because that's just not a thing that World War II video games, especially first-person shooters like ever engage with and like the holocaust is like that game at least on some level grappling with the ideology of nazis rather than just oh they're bad go shoot them get to the end of the level um and so it's true that more games like just use the black and white nature of like them bad go shoot as opposed to like well maybe unpack that a little and find out a little bit what's beneath the surface of just you know, a logo. Um, but like the fact that there's like a strategy game that just lets you play out the elements of power and see who wins, who loses. Like, I don't know that hearts of iron needs to like tell you that Nazism is bad. But isn't there something there to any game that lets you take on that role? Like, isn't there something, I don't know. I I'm just sort of, uh, armchair, you know, looking at this thinking, I mean, the Germans could have won, like, right? Like, I don't think it's, like, implausible for a game to, like, set up, like, ah, like, see how you could have tipped the balance of power and made different decisions. Like, I don't, letting you envision a scenario where, like, the Germans win, like, I I don't, it doesn't reflect on the player in my mind that, uh, like, you're bad because you saw a scenario where the Germans didn't Mm. fuck this up or the Allies didn't find a way through. So, I mean, I think it's a, you know, a fine line sometimes, and certainly the existence of this media can then be used by people to indulge in fantasies that are extreme but i don't know that their mere existence is itself uh a problem i remember talking to thomas johansson about this over a paradox and he felt like it's an it's an unresolved tension because if you make games like this you're not going to be able to resolve it but he felt there was kind of an inherent allure to playing as the germans in world war ii even if you are a diehard like committed like anti-fascist like the, the allure to playing that side is that they're the, like, alt-history side. They're the, like, well, the, actually the odds are kind of stacked against them. They become very interesting to play as. Uh, there's kind of an allure to, like, can I beat the odds here and, like, use my amazing, like, military prowess that I have to, 
you know, change the course of history. If you do that often enough, like at a certain point, is there kind of a like subtext where like these games are encouraging you to identify with maybe the Germans more than you otherwise should, right? Like you're identifying with the Germans a hell of a lot more than like, say, uh, you know, the Soviets, for instance, uh, because, you know, like we talked about this a couple weeks ago, I play a lot of games where, you know, you're trying to see, can the Germans make Operation Barbarossa work, the invasion of the Soviet Union? Can they pull it off? Really interesting topic. Um, it's a topic with a horror story, like, attached to it. Uh, but nevertheless, the story isn't as interesting from the other side uh, in terms of, like, making a game out of it. Like, those early days for the Soviet Union, that is hard to make an interesting strategy game uh, where you feel like the Soviets are an interesting protagonist in that story. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that just because the the arc of that campaign. Uh, but it's it's an odd thing. And I don't know... I don't know that there's a way that a game can easily resolve that. I don't think the solution is... I don't think the solution is the game has to somehow remind you at every turn, like, hey, this this side is really bad, because that's patronizing. Um, right. In the end, people are going to fetishize these sort of uh, signs, symbols, history of these corrupt and fascist-like regimes. And to an extent... That's not my problem, right? Like, these people are going to do that no matter what. Like, it's it's this weird thing. It, it makes it hard for me to participate in these hobbies sometimes because it is really alienating to enter those spaces and realize, like, wait. Like, I just want to play a fucking game about Gettysburg. And y'all are kind of really into the whole, like, you know, man, if only the South had won thing. And, like, are you just, like, oh, kind of role-playing Robert E. Lee? Or is this kind of, like you know, a daydream for you because I'm not here for that. And so that makes it complicated, but nothing that I'm not going to give up like a field of interest or a hobby that I like really enjoy and topics that I really enjoy because people are fucking creepy about it. Uh, the best thing that I can do do in that case is just try to bring my own knowledge and, you know, critical ones to bear and like point out these issues. I mean, I'm not very familiar with this game. All I know is that there would be a sense of discomfort for me in in sort of taking that on. And I would be wary of the, you know, the Troy Goodfellow sort of hidden curriculum aspect if there is one uh, to this. Because obviously any simulation of this nature, any game that is uh, purporting to be a a fun and interesting game uh, is going to obviously be obfuscating some of the details of this war out of the simulation itself, right? You're not necessarily, I I hope you're not participating in necessarily uh, acts of genocide in the game itself. You're, you're participating in a, in a campaign, right? On a battlefield. It's not necessarily the same thing that you're doing. Certain parts of of it are obviously. Like, like in the game, like specifically the game encourages you to use strategic bombing as a tool to win the war. World War II okay. strategic bombing is indiscriminate, like destruction of civilian targets. That's what strategic yeah. bombing is in that era. Um, and now the weird thing is, the game even like I think makes it work the way bomber commanders thought bombing worked in World War II. If that makes sense, like 
What we now know is that these air campaigns were pretty ineffective in a lot of ways. Um, like, bombing wasn't precise. Like, you never hit where you were aiming for. Um, so it, it just wasn't <laughs> yeah. a super effective uh, way to break the enemy's capacity to wage war. Um, but in the game, it is. And so the game is kind of being like, well, you know, you can actually really hobble someone's infrastructure if you just bomb the shit out of them. In reality, it didn't hobble them all that much. It just killed a lot of people. And after a certain point, killing people became the object of the bombing, though uh, people hesitated to just admit it uh, straight up. But in Hearts of Iron, it's very much this like, oh yeah, you definitely want to like strategically bomb uh, enemy cities because that's how you like destroy their industry and their infrastructure and it gums up the works, basically. Um, and so the game is encouraging you and gives you, gives you like ahistoric incentives in some ways to be like, yeah, send out the, <laughs> the research, the B29, send it out. Right. This is almost cleaner in a way or more effective in a way, yeah. which is, that is very interesting. All right, cool. I think that's probably going to do us uh, for today in terms of questions. Of course, if you have questions, you can send those to gaming at vice.com with the subject question. As always, shout out to Bowen for letting us use his track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're on twitch.tv slash Waypoint. And we're everything that we write. You can read it at waypoint.vice.com. Rob, where can we find you online? At Rob Zachney. Patrick, how about you? At Patrick Klubik. Fantastic. You can find me at Danielle R.I. Of course, if you want to. And I will always remind you during this beautiful weekend to be good and be good at it. And live long enough to see yourself become young. <laughs> I'm good at phrases. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.